The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 857 in the Black Bibles. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Katie. Thank you, Kyle. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. We're so glad to have you joining us. If um, this is your first time to Christ the King, I want to say a particular welcome to you. Um, one of the things that we want you to know here is that um, this is a place where we believe every single one of us, whether it's our first time showing up to church or your 1,000 and first time showing up to church, every single one of us shows up in need of God's grace, in need of a savior. Um, all of us are sinners. And so um, we're all in the same boat, but we also believe that the Bible teaches that we have a great savior for our need. Um, one who has come to, to give us hope in this world. And that's what we're going to consider. We're, um, we're pausing, we've paused our series on the book of Revelation for, uh, for that season of Advent. Uh, we are looking at the story of, of Jesus and his first Advent. Advent means arrival, the first arrival of Christ. And we've kind of looked at it through the different lenses that we've, um, that we've considered even with our Advent wreath. So uh, the first first week, last week, we looked at hope. We considered the story of Jesus through the lens of hope. And today we're going to look at the story of Jesus's first advent through the lens of his love, his humble love. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, Humble Love. Um, so humble that we misspelled it in the, in the order of worship, that kind of humility, you know, that's some real humble love. And I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, what's humble love? This is going to be an interesting sermon. Sorry, we're doing humble love this morning. Um, so three things I want you to see about, about God's love as we find in the scriptures. First, that God's love is historic. Second, it's humble. And third, it's gracious. It's humble, it's historic, it's humble, and it's gracious. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we consider it. Lord, we do thank you for your grace, uh, for your love that, um, that none of us deserve, but you have poured out upon us because of your marvelous goodness and grace. We ask that you would help us now to see, um, to see Christ, the one through whom you have poured out uh, immeasurable grace upon uh, your people. We ask that your spirit would do the work that only your spirit can to open the eyes of our hearts, our minds, to see Christ in, um, in this word that you have given to us. And we ask that you would do that either for the first time or um, for many times over that you have done this. We pray that you would, again, by your grace, help us to see Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it was the day before Halloween and a high school teacher named Brian Kett was walking the halls of his school. 
And Mr. Kett was a biology teacher in Los Angeles. Uh, and he's kind of he's kind of a nerd. You know, all the all the kids in, in school like to tease Mr. Kett about being a nerd, but he was a cool nerd, you know. And as he's walking the halls, Mr. Kett is walking past a freshman who's in his class named Nathan. And Nathan is also a nerd, but not a cool nerd. He is an uncool nerd. Nathan was new not only to the school as a freshman, but also new to the the, um, city. Didn't know much about this school at all. Didn't know the traditions of the school. But Nathan was a huge movie fan. Excited to be in Los Angeles. Loved movies, especially the movie Back to the Future with Marty McFly and his famous red vest and the denim jacket and the white Nikes with the red checks. And as Mr. Kett is walking the hall, he hears... He hears this boy, Nathan, talking about how he is going to come to school on Halloween the next day dressed as Marty McFly, and he can't wait. And Mr. Kett begins to panic because he knows that this kid is about, he's about to completely humiliate himself in front of the whole school by showing up. But he, he can't, he, you know, he's, he's passed him already. He doesn't want to go back and tell him. He doesn't want to shame the kid. So Mr. Kett hatches a plan to help this boy. Mr. Kett, after school, later that afternoon, decides that he too needs a Marty McFly costume. Because what's better than one Marty McFly but two? So he goes to the Goodwill, he looks for the denim jacket, he finds one, he looks for the red vest, there are no red vests at the Goodwill, but there's a red life preserver that he purchases. He buys the red life preserver, there's no white Nikes with the red checks, but there's some white orthopedic shoes in his size that he gets. And he he gets some construction paper at home and cuts out a red swoosh and puts it on the side of his shoes. And then the next morning, he waits. He waits until Nathan shows up at school and is about to walk in. And there's Nathan in all of his glory with with the costume that he's saved, that he's saved up for, that he's so excited. And he's the only kid in a costume. And Mr. Cat hops out of his car and he walks in, one Marty McFly looking like he'd walked straight off of the set and another Marty McFly looking like he'd walked straight out of Goodwill. And they walk in together and because they came in together, because Mr. Cat had taken on the likeness of this young freshman boy, All of the embarrassment, all the teasing, all of the shame came upon Mr. Kett. Everyone thought Nathan looked great. And they were teasing Mr. Kett because of how Nathan looked and how much better he was. And I hope that you see that this is only a small whisper of the story that we find here in Luke 2. In fact, I almost didn't want to tell that story because it's kind of a cute story. But Luke 2 is not a cute story. Luke 2 tells us of one, God who becomes flesh and enters into our darkness and our shame and he takes on our frailty and he bears our likeness so that we might know his saving love and grace. You see, the humble love of God, Luke wants us to know, It's not myth. It's not some myth. It is historical. It is fact. It is an event. The Christian faith, by the way, is dependent upon historical events that occurred. 
And there's, there's historical markers given to us around those events, events like the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We have historical markers given to us from Luke here. In verse one, he tells us this happened in a specific time and place. It happened in Bethlehem. It happened when there was a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It happened when the first registration was with Quirinius, the governor of Syria. Time, places, people. It's historical. It's a fact. Sir William Ramsey was one of the most prolific archaeologists of the 19th century. He studied in uh, some of the liberal colleges in Germany, which were uh, many of the professors are seeking to disprove the validity of the New Testament. Uh, and Sir William Ramsey also set out to prove the unreliability of the New Testament with his archaeological work. But yet, years later, after seeing Luke's over and over historical accuracy put on display through archaeological discovery, he later wrote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed among the, along with the greatest of historians. That's why Luke says at the beginning of this book, if you flip over and look at Luke 1, it's very open. He says, listen, I have compiled for my friend, he's writing to this man, Theophilus. He's saying, Theophilus, I have compiled for you eyewitness testimony and accounts that people have said about this man named Jesus so that you may be certain of all he has done. The arrival of Jesus into this world, it's not mythology. It is fact. Jesus, Jesus entered into history there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth and the, t- the scriptures teach that he was the son of the most high. And even if you don't believe that he is that, even if you don't believe that he is the son of the most high, we have to deal with the fact that there was a real man named Jesus who was born, who changed the world. He changed the world. Unlike any figure throughout history ever has. And Luke tells us how this figure, this world-changing figure arrived. And it was with complete smallness and insignificance and humility. We see in this story the humility of God's love. Humility. The word humble comes from the Latin word hummus, which I know sounds delicious, but actually means actually means earth. It's to be of the earth, from the ground, low to the ground. Out of love, Jesus became very low. He came to the earth. Some other monotheistic religions, monotheistic means belief in one God, mono, one, theistic God. Other monotheistic religions like Judaism and Islam, they struggle with this idea that the one God who is so great that he could somehow become finite and frail and in a human body. But friends, I want you to see that what makes him so high is that he, what, what, part of what proves how glorious and high he is is the fact that he can 
become low. He's able to become low. To say that he's too high and great to become a man is actually to criticize and limit his power. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book uh, entitled Miracles. He says, everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is virtually the test of its greatness. The ability from, for the great to enter the little is proof of that great one's power. Some of you scientists will get this. I'd, you maybe explain it to me later. He goes on to write, many inorganic propositions are true of organisms. So inorganic, little, organic, great. Many inorganic propositions are true of organisms, but no organic propositions are true of minerals. Then he puts it a little bit more easy for people like me. He says, you can become kittenish with your kittens, but your kitten will never discuss philosophy with you. The greater can come down and become smaller. It's proof of their greatness. And furthermore, the inability of the lesser to enter the greater is proof of its lesserness. C.J. Stroud, Texans' great new quarterback. You guys been watching this guy? Listen, C.J. Stroud could, play two, could come play two-hand touch with you and your friends, and he would do fine. If you went and played football, one down of football with C.J. Stroud and his friends, you would be annihilated, and so would I. The greater can enter the less, but the less cannot enter the great. Someone who is wise can understand that something is foolish, but the fool will think that he is wise and will never understand wisdom. It's the lowness and the smallness of mind of the foolish that can't understand the greatness of wisdom, but wisdom certainly understands foolishness. The Bible The Bible tells us of one who is the son of God who further displays his greatness by becoming small. But do not mistake this for meaning that he is limited in his majesty. The Bible is clear to emphasize the greatness of Jesus. When John tells the story of the incarnation, he begins in John 1 with creation. And in John 1, 3, he says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. Every single thing was made through him. Nothing was made that is made apart from him. Every single of those billions of galaxies that we now know exists that hold billions of stars, that hold untold numbers of planets orbiting those stars, all of it made through him. Not only the objects, but the very scientific laws that hold those together at the cosmic level and all the way down to the subatomic level, every single thing made through him. The one who made all of it, the one who was and is the light of men, That one, we are told here, entered into embryonic darkness. The light entered embryonic darkness. We sing it at Christmas. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. He became blind in the darkness of the womb so that people who walk in darkness might see his light. 
People who walk in the spiritual darkness of sin might see the light of his forgiveness and grace. People who walk in the darkness of sorrow might see the light of his hope. The people who walk in bondage might see the light of his freedom. People who walk in shame might see the light of his face. He entered darkness. He got low. He became small. Luke states it so matter-of-factly in verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The one who in Genesis 2 made man by breathing his life into the dust of Adam, that one has now become a man born into the dust of a stable floor. No doctor, no midwife, not even a welcome. Not even a welcome to a laboring mother who shows up at an inn. You ever seen a laboring mother? You imagine turning her away, shuffling her into a barn, into a stable. This is how insignificant Jesus was, how anonymous he was how small and how powerless he was, how frail he became, and yet he is the son of the most high. The great has become small, placed in a manger. That does not hit us like it hit people in the first century. But a lot of us don't spend time around barns. A manger is a feeding trough. Animals that most of us spend time around are dogs. Can you imagine ever placing your child in your dog bowl? laying an infant in a large dog bowl because there was nowhere else to place them. That's the kind of lowness and smallness that the God of the universe took on when he came. It's the humility of his love. So humble that he became a baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, The ancients thought that swaddling cloths were needed to keep um, babies' arms straight, their legs straight as they grew. They they, they swaddled their babies very differently than the way, when we hear swaddling cloths, we think of those nice linen 21st century blankets that we wrap our babies up in. The the, the ancients used these, these swaddling cloths because they thought that that's what was best for children. It wasn't. Jesus was born into a world where at the moment of his birth, his body would be ignorantly mishandled, even in love. His body would be constrained and bound and his limbs would be bound. And he would enter a world like that and later exit a world like that. He would exit a world where his arms and his legs were once more bound by nails to a cross. Where he would give himself over to the smallness and weakness and the shame. The God of the universe would give himself over to the shame of death on a cross. His hands and feet fastened to it, submitting 
out of love for his people to death on a cross and even in death crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Killed by ignorant men, his body mishandled by ignorant men. And in that moment, in their ignorance, he still cries out for grace. Because that is the love of God that we see in the Christmas story. It's historic, it's true, it's an event, it happened, it's humble, and it's gracious. It's a gracious love. Grace is an undeserved gift, not one that we can earn ourselves, but one that we completely rely upon the giver to give. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich in this life? No. Likely not. Often not. He didn't need to be rich in this life because there was a better world. And any who are in Christ are completely rich in him and co-heirs of that world to come that he is bringing at his second arrival. What world do you want to be rich in? A friend of mine told me uh, about the time he was looking at his credit card statement and he was looking more closely than usual at it because his credit card statement was way higher than it had been the month before. So he begins looking at the line items. What, what happened? I didn't change my expenses. He asked his wife, she didn't. So he starts perusing these line items and he sees all of these charges on the Apple store, the iTunes Apple store showing up on his, on his card. And then he sees some other charges. It was something that he'd never heard of. It was called like Clash of Clans. What, what is this? But then he remembers that his child had been playing this iPad game with that same name. And so he goes and he asks his son, hey, you know that game Clash of Clans? Oh yeah, dad, I'm doing great in that game. Tell me about how you're doing that great. Well, every once in a while, I'll need to buy some extra coins to get me a, a little bit more power, a little bit more influence, a little bit, a little bit few more weapons to fight these enemies. And all I have to do is click this button and it gives me more. He's like, that's not all you have to do. There's a bill. His son had become completely rich, completely rich in this world that doesn't matter. In this world that a year later, his son is gonna totally move on from and start playing another game in another world. What world do we need to be rich in? What world does a good father want their child to be rich in? He became poor. Paul later tells the Philippian church, he emptied himself. He gave everything he had. He said, he, he who was equal and like God emptied himself and became like a servant and went to a cross 
so that any who would look to him in need, any who would come to him like he came into this world, any who would come to him in need, vulnerable, asking for help, will find it in Christ. Friends, you don't have to be morally rich in this world to come to Christ. We, we celebrated it just a moment ago in our order of worship and we said it together, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Not a result of, of all the moral riches that you can gather for yourself. That is not how you receive salvation. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Christians have nothing, we have nothing to be proud of except Christ. He is everything. And he has become, he came into this world to show us what true greatness looks like. And friends, he is coming again. There will be a second advent. And at that second advent, he will come in a very different way than he did at his first. He will come in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his might and reveal to us even more of who he is. Are you ready for that advent? He is coming. It will be another historic event. It is happening. It is not myth. It is fact. He is coming. He really is coming. And when we see him, the scriptures tell us we will become like him. Like him in glory. The one who became like us in our frailty. At his first advent, he became like us in our frailty so that we could approach him. He's the most accessible person ever. If he had come the way he will his second time, the first time, you'd never feel like you can approach him. But he came as the most approachable, vulnerable person so that you would come. And he is coming again because he's not just a weak, frail baby. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He will make all things right and he is mighty to save. So let's look to him. Rest in him. Rest in the love of someone who would do that for you. I hope that your soul finds deep rest. What does he say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Don't you want rest for your souls this morning? Look to Christ. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, look to him and find rest for your soul. Amen, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus Help us, help us to look to him. Help us to rest deeply in him. Help us to find our hope in him. We pray that you would graciously love us through him and through your spirit. We ask all this in his name, amen.